Amen. You may be seated. Couldn't be a better song to sing into a sermon, but I think I could say that every single week as we continue to sing the Word of God to God and to one another. So thank you for the partnership that we have together in worshiping a resurrected Jesus Christ this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 10. Our text for this morning will be verses 7 through 44, 7 through the end of the chapter. As you turn there, we have been here uh, last week and we saw that the people of Israel had sinned terribly. Ezra had led them to repent of sin that they had committed. The, the sin that they committed was a repeat. For you see, they sinned long ago by marrying foreign wives and chasing after the gods, little g gods of these foreign wives. And that led them to all kinds of abominations against God. And God exiled them into Babylon. And as we began this book of Ezra, we saw that Jeshua and Zerubbabel were leading people back into Jerusalem. They were being restored as God had promised. But in this moment, they have repeated the sin that sent them into exile. And they married foreign people. And they took on their gods once again. Ezra led them to this moment that we're at in the text where they have confessed their sins and they are ready for repentance and they ask Ezra to lead them to the act of repenting for these sins. If you remember last week, Shechaniah, on behalf of the people, says to to Ezra, Arise, it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Lead us. To make ourselves reconciled to God. We need your help, priest Ezra. You know the law. You studied it. You do it. Now teach us how to do what you've studied. In response, Ezra called for the people to make an oath. An oath. To swear. To enter into a covenant with him. That they would do as will be said tomorrow. And the people consented. And they took this oath without hesitation. And Ezra went away as we left him last week. He went away to fast before the Lord all night. And the people went away and the people prepared for Ezra's strong, bold leadership tomorrow. As we will see in the text this morning, the coming days were to prove to be radical, extreme. True repentance always is radical and extreme. We will see that violence was practiced in a way in the coming days. Look with me in verse 7 of Ezra chapter 10, and let's read just a few verses down to 12 and We'll stop and make comment. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials 
and the elders. All his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rains. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. A congregational assembly was called for. And there are extreme consequences for not reporting within three days. Two, to be specific. Number one, if a man does not show up to this assembly that's been called for within three days, he will lose all of his property. This is authority that was given to Ezra back over in chapter 7, verse 26. If you remember there, Artaxerxes sent Ezra back to Jerusalem on this second wave of returnees. And Artaxerxes commissions Ezra with these words. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So Ezra's acting on authority here. And if a man doesn't show within three days, he will lose his property. But more than that, it doesn't stop there. Ezra goes on to say, they will be cast out of the congregation of Israel. That's extreme. It was a terrible thing to be cast out of the congregation. If you know in the New Testament, let me just go here right quick. Jesus heals the man born blind. His parents are terrified to tell the Pharisees how it is that he became healed because they did not want to be cast out of the synagogue. This is our lifeline. If we can't gather with the people of God, woe be to us. We're in our worst way. And that's the threat here. For those that wouldn't report within three days. I want you to picture this scene for a moment. We're told in the text here that this is the ninth month. In our calendar, that's December, January. So that's a cold season. It's in the ninth month. There is is a crowd of people in the open square outside of the temple. All of them have gathered. There is gravity in the moment. There's genuine conviction. We see evidence of that all through this text. They understand clearly the greatness of their sin and the expanse of it. 
And they know that they've sinned against a very pure and holy God. And they have a gravity about that. The, the text says they trembled because of this matter in verse 9. They trembled because of their sins. That's a good place for us to be. Trembling because of our wrong against God and His commands. They know that they've broken His law. But they also tremble because of the heavy rains. December, January rains were bitter and cold. It's pretty fitting. We get a weather report in the Scriptures here. You want to question whether or not this is real history? Why would people in a, in a fairy tale give us weather reports? This is authentic history happening here. Ezra instructs them to specifically confess and fully repent of their sins against God. He calls them to genuinely confess. And last Sunday, we defined confession as that moment when we agree with God and His Word and say, Father, I have wronged you according to this command. He's called them to that, and they've done it. He says, make confession to the Lord. Agree with Him on your sinfulness. But then he calls for them to thoroughly repent of this sin. And last Sunday we defined repentance as a 180 degree turn. Going this way towards sin, 180 back towards God. Repent of this sin. And that's what he means when he says, separate yourselves. So he says, make confession to the Lord. And separate yourselves from these wives. Confess and repent. That is the Christian life. I said last week, repentance is more than confession, but it's not less than confession. Confession begins the act of repentance. Well, the people obey. We, we see that they fulfill their oath, and they obey Ezra's bold, faithful, biblical leadership. They say, it is so. We must do as you have said. And the day before, three days before, they had taken an oath and entered into a pledge to do what Ezra had said. And they trusted Ezra that he would lead by the book of God. This is, like we said last week, a very good moment in the life of this congregation of people in Ezra, this leader. Because we see the, the Hebrews 13, 17 behavior here. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. We said this last week. A congregation of people needs to obey and submit and follow leaders who are leading by the book. And Ezra's all over the book. And these people are steadfastly following with delight. And Ezra's not groaning through this process, intimidating as it might have been. And I would say that in so doing, they are also obeying the leadership of God. Because God sent Ezra to do this reformation work. And Ezra even says, you need to Make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. They're submitting ultimately to God through Ezra's 
leadership. Well, there's my first point this morning. We see Israel grieving in the rain. That's point number one. It's a good place for them to be. It's good that they're in this cold rain grieving over their sins against God. Point number two. We're going to see Israel have a repentance that leads to innocence. And I love saying that. (laughs) That's Christianity. When we truly repent, we're proclaimed innocent in the matter. Watch this. Look with me in verse 14. We'll go 14 now through 17. Let our officials, as the people of Israel continuing, let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jazeah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Meshulam, And Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Extreme, radical actions are being taken here. The people ask for some practical provisions to make this repentance possible. We're so many. We have sinned so far and wide. And the weather is brutal. We want to do this right. So here's a plan. We, we're with you. Can we, can we orchestrate a good plan to bring about full repentance of the congregation? And so they say the sheer volume of people who need to confess requires much more time. And as we see here, it required three months to work through these cases. So they asked for appointments to repent so that the wrath of God, the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. They had a great appreciation for the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And look here. i just make a quick comment here. There are some who still rebel in this moment. You've got this guy named Jonathan and Jahaziah. They rebel. They opposed this. And there's two Levites that support them in their opposition. Can you imagine this rebellion? Just imagine. Imagine what they get in the here and now. They're going to get confiscation of their property and cast out from the congregation. It brings to mind Hebrews chapter 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And it goes on down to say in 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
That's what these two guys are signing up for. (laughs) The painstaking process of thorough repentance needs to be looked at. Ezra assembled a council of leaders who would examine the matter, is what the text says. We're going to examine this matter, and they do it man by man, family by family, case by case. No man left behind in the call to repentance. All who were guilty were fairly asked why they should not separate from their wives. Speak to this issue. What do you have to say for yourself in this great sin? So day by day, for three months, these people methodically come to their appointed times to be confronted by God and His Word and to stand in account for their actions. And so we see here that godly grief has produced repentance that is now in the process of bringing about salvation without regret. But in this, and in this godly grief, we see that these people practiced earnestness. That these people were eager to clear themselves. And they had indignation, they had fear, they had longing, they had zeal. They were willing to endure punishment so that at every turn they could be proven innocent in the matter. And innocent comes only through the path of repentance. And they wanted innocence. And they're going to get it. Their sins were many, but God's mercy was more. I have a feeling we're going to sing that. It's a great song, and it's exactly what's happening right here. Their sins were many, but God's mercy was more. They are going to be proven innocent in the matter. And if you remember Ezra a few chapters ago, back in chapter 9, he said, you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. Boy, that's going to happen here. Shechaniah says, even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Oh, they're about to taste and see the hope of Israel. And they're going to be innocent in the matter. How can they be innocent? How? They've done these sins. Where is there a measure of innocence to be provided for them? Well, they're going to be proven innocent by confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, and then very, very important, they're going to be proven innocent in the matter with a substitute. Look in verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 19. Their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. There's going to be blood shed. There's going to be a substitute provided in the form of a ram. And the sins of the people are going to be put upon this ram who is then killed to atone for the sins of the people. This was prescribed by God long ago in His law. They're ultimately, however going to be proven innocent 
by a substitute who would come from them. For you see, this ram pointed forward to the Son of Israel, Jesus Christ. The ram was a picture pointing forward to a reality. These very people, this remnant, had to be preserved by God so that the Savior, the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus Christ, could come. And so in the moment, they are saved by the substitution of a ram, but really, ultimately, they are saved by the substitution of one who would come from among them, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's beautiful. It's a gospel right here in the book of Ezra. They understand, or we today are to understand, that for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who know no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. I paraphrased 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's how they're ultimately saved. Hebrews 11.13 says that many died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And I believe that these Israelites greeted the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ from afar when they looked at a ram whose blood was shed for their sinfulness. And through that act, they're proven innocence in the matter. That's good news. That's good proclamation of the Christian gospel. Jesus Christ is the hope of Israel in spite of all of this that we've done. My third point is titled this, Etched in History. Look at this. Look in verse 18 with me. 18 through 43. Now be careful with me here. Now they were found, there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Mahaseah, Eleazar, Jareb, Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Emmer, Hanani, Zebediah, of the sons of Harim, Mahaseah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pasher, Elionai, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad, and Elisha, of the Levites, Josabad, Shemai, Kaliah, that is Kalita, Pathalhiah, Judah, Eliezer, of the singers, Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri, and of Israel, the sons of, and he goes on to list, if you did a count, 84 names. <laughs> 84 names. I'll spare us this morning, although I hate to not read that, but you get the point. By my count, there's 111 men named here. These are real people who committed real sins. Can you imagine your name being etched into the Scripture for all of posterity? That's the case for these men. This is history we're reading here. Of the priests, there's 17 of them. 
Look at this. Some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak. That is tragic. Jeshua is the man in Ezra chapter 2 that God said, you lead the people back into Jerusalem. Some of his descendants have committed this sin. Those that should have taught others the law broke the law themselves. And by their example, they empowered, they emboldened, they enticed, they encouraged the people of Israel, the congregation, to follow their sinful ways. But in turn, now, praise be to God, these men have been led to repentance that leads to salvation without regret, and they are setting a new example for the people of Israel. Levites, there's six. Singers, one. A gatekeeper, three. And the body of Israel at large, 84 members committed this sin. Now, I've wrestled here for the last several weeks. That list seems a lot smaller than I thought it would have been. Man, when you read earlier in Ezra, there's some extreme grief Ezra's yanking hair out of his face and his head and ripping his clothes, wearing sackcloth and grieving and mourning extensively. And I'm going, for 111 people out of tens of thousands that have returned? There's two ways to look at this. I'm going to preach both of them. I think both have merit. I think one's stronger than the other, but both are true. I would not dare proclaim something not true from here. The first is this. This could be a complete and final list of all the sinners from day one to now. This this is the package of sinners. 111 men out of tens of thousands of men. And if that's true, you might say, well, what's the big deal, Ezra? Everybody's sinning. 111 and you went bald over the deal? You shaved with your hand? Well, I think there's a truth throughout all of Scripture, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. It's a little verse that says this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The analogy there with Paul writing to the Corinthians is leaven is equated to sin. So you could read it, a little sin Sends the whole lump, corrupts the entire body of people. That's how serious a congregation of people needs to be about sin amongst themselves. That's serious. Congregational purity is a must. It is at a premium in Christianity. Do you understand that your sins are not committed in a vacuum and only impact you. Your sins spill over to many, many people. Your children, but ultimately even this congregation. And you say, well, uh, my sins are secret. And I say, well, they're not secret before God, number one. And God wants a congregation of people, pure and holy, worshiping Him. And you will be hindered in that act of worship if you are not pure before God. And even there, even though it might be indirectly, you will impact negatively this congregation. People, your sin has widespread ramifications. 
It's never isolated with just you. Yet we live in a culture that places very little value on congregational purity. And that doesn't need to be named amongst us. We need to exhort one another as long as it's called today to pursue holiness through Jesus Christ with God the Father. That's why we gather together. That's why we are called a church. And we together collectively as a congregation need to be pursuing congregational purity lovingly and boldly and gently and firmly all the days that we are called to be together. Well, here's my second way to preach this, and I believe in every bit of that. And I don't want you to throw that away because now I'm going to tell you here's what I really believe is going on. I think both are true. But here's, here's what I think is a little bit right, more, more accurate for the moment and the context that Ezra is writing in. This is a complete and final list after every case was heard. I think it took three months to go through multitudes of cases. And after all was said and done, there was 111 men that had to put away wives. Look at Ezra chapter 6. In verse 20 and 21, I'm drawing this from the text of Ezra itself. They've just completed the temple, and they are at a ceremony dedicating it to God. And in verse 20, we read that they're going to celebrate the Passover upon the reestablishment of temple worship. And over there we see, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and now watch this, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. There are foreign people who are allowed here to partake of the Passover supper with the congregation of Israel. These are people who joined them and separated from the peoples of the land and the gods that they worshipped. So there is an assimilation here of outsiders into the people of Israel, and they are allowed even to partake of the sacred holy meal of the Passover. And so it seems here that the wives who conformed to worshiping the God of Israel, I think would be allowed to remain in the marriage to this Israelite man. And a divorce decree was not ordered in that situation. It's what I believe. They were not to be put away, rather they were to be assimilated into the congregation. So this is why there was a trial for three months that was so methodically endured. But however, the wives who would not embrace the God of Israel, they were called by God through Ezra to be separated from and moved away from. Otherwise, the men who were married to such wives would be drugged away into worshiping their false little g gods instead of the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. 
I think there's a provision throughout the whole spirit of Scripture that these wives that were put away were provided for. I don't think they were just abandoned out in the middle of the wilderness. It's for another time, but I think provisions had to be made for them, but they had to be separated from lest these men would worship their false gods. All right, so now let me come to my last point. It's found in verse 44 of Ezra chapter 10. It's a final and hard word. It's a very hard truth. Look at it. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. That's a hard text. That's enough to make a preacher say, whose idea was it to preach the book of Ezra? It started with me, but it was affirmed by six others. This is the beauty of expository preaching, because expository preaching forces pastors to preach hard texts. And I don't want to meet the pastor that topically preaches and chooses this as his sermon text on some particular Sunday morning. I don't want to run from this verse. I want you to know it makes my head explode at points. I've wrestled with this for weeks now. It's a very hard truth because it's an emotional thing to think of these women and children being put away. You, you might say, but these are covenant relationships. This is marriage. This is a covenant between this man and this woman. And I would say in this Old Testament context, no, these are not covenant marriages. These are violations of God's covenant. These are violations of his prescription for marriage. And he doesn't acknowledge them as covenant relationships, obviously, because he, through Ezra, is commanding these wives to be put away. You know, the old covenant is a physical covenant. There's a physical circumcision on, eighth, on the eighth day. The law is written on tablets. The temple is a building that you go into and worship. The promised land has got rivers and, and seas as its boundary, and there's people that live there. The nation of Israel is biological in the Old Testament. Genetics matter. And in that context, God does not permit his covenant people to make covenants with non-Israel. No way. Why? Because all those people worship someone other than God. And you cannot enter into a covenant with someone other than God and his people. Or you will actually be an enemy of his instead of a covenant bearer of his. God, in this covenant context, does not permit his covenant people to make covenants with non-Israel, but also God does not accept breaking of covenants amongst his covenant people. God hates divorce amongst his covenant people. 
Malachi chapter 2 says it in black and white. And also in this old covenant context, true in the new as well, God hates marriage between his covenant people and people who are outside of the faith. Do not be yoked to unbelievers, New Testament. You know, there's some things that are really troubling. In the old covenant, God had Israel kill the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Edomites and on and on and on. In fact, King Saul, when he didn't, and there was the, the hearing of a bleating of sheep, King Saul was condemned for not obeying God and eradicating the people of the promised land. We wouldn't say we need to go do that today, would we? No. In, in the new covenant world that we live in, it's a covenant that is spiritual, not physical. There is a circumcision, but it's of the heart. There's a temple, but it's the heart. There's a law, not written on tablets, but a law written on the heart. There's a kingdom, there's a promised land, but it's the kingdom of heaven. And there's a nation, but it's a spiritual nation. We are of that. In the new covenant world, we are to treat sin like these old covenant people were to treat foreigners. And so we are to divorce ourselves from sin, separate, put it away. We, in fact, are to not kill people, but we, in fact, are to kill sin. John Owen, you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's God's attitude towards these foreign wives in ancient Israel. And that's God's attitude towards the sins that we live in today. On this side of the new covenant. So I think here. That the main point that we're to take from this hard truth is. Our emotions, our affections, our sentimentalities towards sin. Cannot allow us to keep from repenting. Some of these women even had born children. It's emotional. There's sentimentality there. But they represent sin in Israel. And they have to be put aside lest you chase after their gods. That's how ultimate the issue is. We cannot go about justifying and rationalizing sin and remaining in it. But they have children. I've had children with these women. God does not say, well, you know what? You're just going to have to live in that now. And No, he says, put them away. Your eternity is at stake here. 
And so we too are to not rationalize and have human fleshly reasons to remain in you name the sin that you struggle with. You're to separate from it. You're to confess it to God and you're to separate from it once and for all. God, these people understood that God's wrath against sin is severe. Ezra 10, 14, the people say, we need to do this until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And I'm here to tell you and me, and I've got to tell myself this for three weeks, God has a fierce wrath over the matters of my sin and yours. And the call here is for us to repent, to confess, to agree with Him. That's sin, Lord. And I'm going to turn away from it, and I'm coming back to you. I'm not going to let that drag me off into idolatry and hell on earth and in eternity. And so we need to be extreme against the sin that's in our lives. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with this. Here's, here's the main point of application this morning. When you read a text like this and you see extreme measures taken against defying God's commands, you can only conclude that repentance is a radical act. And I think that me and you, but I think that I have not been radical enough against the sin in my life in various seasons. And I know where I have lingered in sin. And I think we all have a propensity in us to not be radical towards the sins that we commit. If you think about it, repentance in the Old Testament and the New Testament is radically extreme and aggressive. In Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus says this. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Violence. That's a strong word, isn't it? The violent take the kingdom of heaven by force. Do you know that our access to heaven, the kingdom of heaven, that access goes through violence? It was violent for Jesus Christ to die on a cross. It was violent for Jesus Christ, innocent, to be buried in a grave. It was violent when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was violent when he was betrayed. Violence is our ticket to heaven because we get to heaven through a cross. Jesus says also, if we're going to follow him, we're to take up our cross and follow him. So the Christian life is one of violence right there. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We're to crucify our passions and our desires that are sinful. Kill them. Not linger in them. Not confess them and keep on doing them. Kill them. 
crucify them as Christ was. Violence denotes desire, strength, aggression, earnestness required for the Christian life. Do you have these traits in living out your Christianity? That's the call this morning from God out of Ezra chapter 10. We are to have a holy violence. We don't go kill people. We go kill sin in us. It's a holy violence of self-denial, of change of mind. Better than that, of change of heart. We have to do a heart transplant. We have to invade our hearts with scalpels. And we have to cut things off of our heart that God despises. This is how we gain eternal life. This is how we get into the kingdom of heaven. The violent take it by force. Are you violent? Towards the sin in your life. For the glory of God. God was so violent towards the sin in your life. That he killed his only son. On a cross. So that you could take up your cross. And follow him. Into the kingdom of heaven. Paul told the Colossians and us. Colossians 3, 5 and 8 through 8. Put to death. Therefore. What is earthly in you? You hear that? Put to death. That's violent language. Spiritually speaking. Put to death sexual immorality. Put to death impurity. Put to death passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it all to death. Kill it. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's why you want to put to death these things. Because the wrath of God, that's violent too, is coming if you don't put these things to death. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Put it all to death. And escape the wrath of God against such. You know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, here's some violent scripture for you. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. That's violent. Now, don't literally go pluck your eye out. But go get rid of the enablers that enable you to sin. If you've got a, a purity problem online, pull the plug. If your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. Throw it away. It's your right eye and your right hand. Your best ones. Throw them away. It's better that you lose them than in the wrath of God your whole body be thrown into hell. Christianity is violent, spiritually speaking. And it's a war that you must wage until we wait for Christ to come again. So I urge you this morning to think about this. Think about this text. Use this example of the Israelites and Ezra's leadership long ago. And ask yourself this question. Or am I living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin? For whatever reason. Have I not killed it? And if you find one, you need to get after it. And you might need help doing that. We're here for you. Sometimes it takes courage. One of us may need to say to you, arise, 
for it is your task and I'm with you. Be strong and do it. You might need to hear that from us. Because we're about congregational purity for the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of us along the way as we wait for Him to come again. So what sentimental sins are you hanging on to? Whatever they may be, my urge to you this morning is to join me in confessing and repenting so that we might be proven innocent in the matter. Father, what a stunning passage of Scripture. Even as I have studied it for weeks and now preach it, I'm shocked at the truths that lie here. Father, I pray that you would cause us to be a people that sees and appreciates your holiness and your wrath against our sins. And that through the preaching of such difficult texts like this, you would lead us to be a people that says even now there's hope for us in spite of this. And that hope is found in a substitute that we would place our guilt and shame upon and through whom you would look at us and say, because you believe in his substitution, you now are innocent. Father, I pray that we would all do something with this message this morning that would honor you. We wouldn't yawn and walk away and move on with the rest of the world. We'd stop and engage in warfare against the sins that so deeply entangle us. We pray this in the name of our Savior, our strong Savior who conquered sin and death, Jesus Christ. Amen.